Hey, Senda. Hey, Phil. Do you have a game that had a big impact on yes. you as a gamer? Yeah. You just, I, I can't, I'm so excited. I can't even hold it back. I couldn't even wait for you to finish the question. Oh my God. Can we talk about it? Please. please? No. We're going to talk about it. Cue music. And welcome to another fine episode of Pandas Talking Games. I'm one of your hosts, Phil. And I am your other host, Senda. And for today's episode, we had a topic suggestion from Andrew um, on our Slack room, which was to talk about games or gaming experiences that significantly or fundamentally change the way that we run or play games. Yes. Which is a really, like, how could we not talk <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, let's actually talk about that a little bit because I think there's uh, there's some truth to it, and there and this is the reason why when we talk about being polygamous, right? Like, there's there's some reasons for it, right? There's there's reasons why we think it's good to play a whole bunch of different games, which is that there are games that can completely change your perception yeah. on what you think gaming is now I'm I'm not saying that you won't have perception changing experiences if you only ever play one game you totally can but the chance that you will see things differently by playing a different type of game or playing a different style of game or the way the games run or the campaigns run or the GM like all of those things the more of those things you change the greater the chances that something like this is going to uh, change your perceptions, your ideas of how a game can be run. Yeah, I would say challenging your assumptions about what it means to yeah, run absolutely. or play a game, right? Um, which is just fun and cool because every time it happens, then you get to evolve into making your game the funnest it can be for you or your players well, or whatever it I, is, right? And I think this goes to an important piece here is that... Because you are having this experience in a particular game does not always mean that it can only happen within that, that game. game. Yes, right? yes, there are yes, a lot yes, of yes, things yes. that are transferable. Yes. And, and we're going to talk about in a little bit, we're going to talk about games that fundamentally changed us, not just as in our perceptions of what a game could be. But a, I know for my list, because I haven't seen your list, for my list, a number of the games that I'm talking about wound up being things that I carried into other games. And some of that DNA even exists today in games that I run, games that I have designed, things like that. Those pieces, um, they carry with you because a lot of things about games you can transport to other games now specific mechanics you might have to actually convert to make it work but certain concepts certain ways something is gm'd certain ways a story is told or constructed those kinds of things those become the things that you actually can as a gm like a tool in a toolbox you can acquire that tool and put it into your toolbox and then take it with you as you go from game to game yes and certainly, I think if there's a running theme for the three games that I have picked for memorable experiences, and I just picked three because they're probably way more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, these specific three are things that wound up coming with me. Yeah. And and I, I picked three with an honorable mention, right? Yeah, that's okay. Which is the honorable mention is specific to mechanics, so it's harder to take with you, as you were just saying. But... um. Yeah, I tried I tried to match to three, which is actually surprisingly hard. Um, I certainly don't play as many games as I used to when I was doing She's a Super Geek and playing a new game every month. Um, but like I've played a lot of games in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you I mean, have too. Um, 100%. Right, played and run. And so it is, um, it's interesting to look back and think, um, you know, which were the ones that really, truly ended up influencing me? Which ones were the ones that um, made me rethink or have those aha moments and then take something and be like, I want to bring this forward with me, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, 
all of those all of those things. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about games, ga- games or gaming experiences that significantly or fundamentally changed us. And uh, it's good because it kind of like, I guess the other part of this is you guys get a lot of advice from us and it's probably good you understand where <laughs> our outlooks on GMing comes from. And yeah. for sure, yeah. the advice that we dispense on the show is also flavored by our own experiences and our own um experiences that like significantly and fundamentally changed us. So that that's also part of it. But I think the other piece, because again, we're an advice show. So what is the advice for today? The advice for today is to have those experiences and learn like when you're having a really good time in a game, what is it about this particular game and is causing me to have a good time? And can I or how can I pick this up and bring it to another game? Not everything's going to be directly like not everything's universally transferable. Some things might be like, oh, this works, but it really only works for mystery games. Like I'm going to do this in all my mystery games. Sure. But if I'm playing an adventure game, I can't actually bring that with me. Some things are going to be like universal. And so, again, I'll say it now and then we're going to say it again at the conclusion. This is the reason why we are such advocates for like, go out and play a bunch of different games because this is how you increase your chances. You're going to have one of these moments and then you're going to get to carry that with you. Yeah. And and you will have had hopefully an awesome experience along the way, right? Yes. Now, we're not going to explain to you this week how to carry it with you. Sure. But I'm kind of thinking that maybe that's the thing that we should actually do for next week. It could be a follow. It could be a very logical follow up to this conversation. I'm yeah. just actually going to. Yeah, make a note. Bob, put a pin in it. Wait, we don't have a Bob. I'm doing it right now. Okay. Thank you, Bob Standard. <laughs> okay. That all said, we've decided that we would start um, in the beginning, that we would each <laughs> talk about experiences about our first games. Yep. A very then, good place to start. <laughs> yep. Then we were going to talk about each talk about three memorable experiences. We'll ping pong through those. So we'll go back and forth on those. Sure. And then I have one more at the end. Um, you already see it. You've already seen it because you oh, see the yeah. notes, but we'll do one more Spoilers. at the end. <laughs> we'll do one more gaming experience at the end and then we'll wrap up. Yes. Cool. So good. our first games. Yes. Um, I guess because I'm old. You can I'll, go, I'll first. go first yeah. on this one. Yeah. So obviously my first gaming experiences uh, was in uh, the early 80s uh, when I learned to play uh, basic D&D and it was basic D&D. It was in the box, um, specifically the Mulvey box set. Um, And my first gaming experiences were like a mixed bag. So on one hand, it was my first gaming experience. First time uh, I never gotten to try role playing. And honestly, because of like where it was in the 80s, right? It wasn't like a thing that already existed. Like it was new. It was like seeing Star Wars for the first time, right? There was like, there wasn't a Star Wars before Star Wars. Like if you're, if, if you're younger, you grew up in a world where there was always some sort of Star Wars. Like I didn't, right? I grew up in a world where I can distinctly remember a time before and after Star Wars. And for me, for sure, there was a time before I had played D&D and had no idea what a role-playing game was. And then there was D&D. And so that part is great, right? Because that is literally the spark that got me into the hobby. But also I played with an adversarial GM who was like a few years younger than me or a few years older than me. He was in sixth grade. I was in fourth. Um, He was not exceptionally good GM. He was definitely adversarial. And there were definitely some rocks dropped on me moments. Um, There are some times where he basically screwed my characters over. Um, I mean, he was in sixth grade. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like harsh critiquing him, right? (laughs) Like, Like, that's just the kind of game that you get when you play. Like we were playing solo, like we were playing a solo game because I was not cool enough to hang out with his other friends. So he was just running stuff for me on the side. Right. And one of the things I had was a mirror of life trapping, right? You know, where you like hold up the mirror and it like sucks the monster into it, which when you're playing solo D&D is like super convenient. Like, you know, when you get in over your head, like trap a monster in your mirror. Sure. So at some point I got caught by a um, 
frost giant or something who like took the mirror out and purposely broke it and left me in a uh, cave with everything I had ever trapped inside the mirror. Oh, no. <laughs> like, wow. That character died. Yes. Um, badly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, like, and then <laughs> there were good times for that. Like there were good times when we played, but like it wasn't it, the, the takeaway for me from it. Right. The thing that changed me was um, he, like he wasted characters pretty frequently. Like I died a lot and had to like make new characters a lot. And um, and also he was pretty heavy handed. Right. Like a like real railroady, not linear like stuff, but real railroady kind of things. And uh, to this day, I am always reticent to kill a player character. Yeah, it's and, like a, a character, right? I'm not a player. Eh, sometimes a player, <laughs> but no, I'm always reticent to kill a character. Um, and I am very not railroady. Mm-hmm. I've had my moments over the years, but like I am very, um, when I was railroady in the past, I was really good at hiding it because yes. I remembered the feeling of not liking being railroaded. So I got really good at like railroading people without them knowing it. Yeah. From behind the wizard's curtain. Right. Yes. Pay and then no I attention. got really good at just not railroading people. So yeah, um, that's like really my takeaways from my first gaming experiences. What was your first gaming experience? I think was also a and d right? It totally was. And I'm actually trying to think what my takeaway was other than I was obsessed. Well, it's okay. That could be um, your takeaway. It definitely was my takeaway. My first game was um, a third edition D&D game in college. And I know we've talked about this briefly on other much older episodes. I have that funny moment where being a girl who was obsessed with fantasy um, books as I was for much of my youth, um, for all of my youth, um, it was the opportunity to get to play out the kind of story that I was constantly reading. I And just to be clear, I was reading I, all of the Dragonlance books, right? Like, you know, the, the how that, that chronal... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? There's, but it's it's one of those series that's written by a million different people. And there's, you know, 10,000 of those books. And I was keeping up with just about all of them for a period of time before I went to college. Um, even though many of them are not terribly good in the way of, you know, giant series like that that are written by a million different people. You're like, oh, this author is good and this author's kind of not. Um, but anyway, <laughs> moving right along from that, um, it was a funny thing where I had bypassed the opportunity to get into D&D when I was in elementary school in the 80s um, because I was scared of being in a club that was all boys. Um, just frankly, like that's what it was, right? So when I was offered the opportunity in college to play with a bunch of the people that I was already hanging out with on the honors floor, because if you were on the honors floor, you were either there because you were a small town, very conservative person who, um, you know, they were very conservative leaning, leaning Christian, basically. Um, or you were one of the nerds um, who had gone through school actually like really like wanting good grades, you know, not just for being good for someone else, but because school could be fun, right? Um, and we read and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we would go to the anime club on Friday nights. And then we would, when we got back from the anime club, we would then play D&D until the GM ran out of material or occasionally until the sun came up. Um, <laughs> it was an experience and I don't regret it for one minute. And I will say, um, we were running, um, he was running Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. So it was a, a pre-published adventure um, that he was adding little tweaks and details and stuff to. Um, I think that I was very privileged to be playing with a GM that I still massively respect as a GM, right? Um even though that's not the style of game that I tend to pick up anymore. Um, I think I, I got a lot out of, um, <clears throat> I guess what I'm trying to say is 
even though my GM was a much more traditional GM and that was a much more traditional game. And certainly there is a moment that I am like, I still have passionate feels about where my halfling got chomped and murdered in one bite by an invisible red dragon. Do I still have feels about that? Yes, I do. Ye betcha. Um, But at the same time, I never truly experienced that super adversarial like GM fiat, you're just dead kind of scenario, right? He was very good at playing by the rules. And even in that scenario that I have just mentioned, where I died for missing one perception check for an invisible dragon, I was immediately murdered. Um, it's like the worst story it ever. Sucks. But but to be clear, he didn't just decide to do that. He actually he was following the text of what the pre-written adventure told him to do right sure. and he was really good at following that text to the letter right and he did and it said in there it will go for the weakest character and boy did it um i didn't have a lot of hit points um so you know i guess what i walk away with is both that um sort of the idea of fairness as an arbiter and then also since i carry that red dragon story with me i also pretty firmly believe in um not murdering player characters sort of in an oops by accident way where they don't even have time to react i think that was probably the point in the return to elemental evil and i think the um the adventure was probably written to do that intentionally and we're like level 12 so like i came back right like it was just the first time that i'd had to be you know resurrected <laughs> like you know sure still so still still and then i was out for the fight um but yeah that so that was my first game and I, there was so much um shared um experience wrapped up in telling that story together that I was just like absolutely hooked for forever right that was it I was I was in and I was not coming back <laughs> <laughs> no I I yeah. mean I get it like right I know you do because I mean I got killed oh man I got killed so many times in that like in those early <laughs> days like killed by so many um so many different things like it was really I mean, it was comical, like the different ways my character died in those early <laughs> days. That really was the only character that I ever had die in a really, in a way that felt unfair to me, I guess, as a player is what I should say, right? Because um, as a player, the entire table failed their perception rolls but I got eaten for it, right? <laughs> like one D20 roll, you're dead, right? One Seriously. chance, that's it. Um, yeah, it was wild though. Anyway, um, but to move right on from that story, which is obviously something else that I've carried with me strongly. <laughs> yes, yes. Should we talk about our actual, like our three yeah, memorable experiences? This is where we're going to get, I think we both tried to make these chronological approximately. Um, and it's interesting um, just to kind of talk about, you know, what games they were. And, and sometimes it was related or not to the game that we had these amazing experiences or learned these things. Sometimes it was directly related to the game. And sometimes it's about the people that you're playing with and stuff too, right? So I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Nope, 100%. Going off the rails. Do you want to start the ping pong? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Age, age before beauty on this one, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to go uh, dial it back to, I believe, 1991 or 1992. Goodness. Uh, the Amber Diceless role-playing game. Now, this thing is a bit of a legacy. I'm not 100% sure how well it would play today, although I am willing to try it mm. um, again. But... Uh, it's real claim to fame is it's like one of the first diceless role-playing games. And when I mean diceless, I don't mean like, oh, it's diceless and it has cards. Like it does not have a randomizer. Yeah. Like the only way that things get, ar like the way, the way that conflicts get arbitrated is by the GM. Yeah. And a set of stats, like four of them. That's yeah. it. Wow. So. The thing about the game that I learned was taking away the randomizer, right? Taking away the mechanics, the tricks, the loopholes, um, all of those things was the first time I had run a game 
that was all narration, right? It was all about the narration. It was all about the what we said, what we described. It was about narrative positioning. Um, they give a really good example in the book of um, how narrative positioning works. Because again, if you're getting into a conflict and you only have four stats, if you're say warfare isn't great, but your strength is, there's a way to narrate what you do so that you're relying on your strength, not your warfare. Yeah. And so when you take away everything else, all you have is literally us sitting around having this conversation, yeah. using our words and our descriptions of what we do to describe um, what's happening in the game. And the game has like some decent um, advice about giving good narration. Like I remember it was the first time that I really in my notes paid attention to things like describe, like describe the smaller features of this room, like talk about what else is happening, like that, those kinds of things, instead of just relying on like perception checks and combat rolls and things mm -hmm. like that. And so for me, the real takeaway was really understanding narrative positioning. It was really about understanding like how important the narration part is to the game and like how the rules, um, you know, like rules fit in, like when you take that away, you can just see how pure narration works. Yeah. Um, and it was really the first time I took being a GM seriously. Like before I was like the forever GM because no one wanted to do it. And so I did it. And that's how we got to keep playing role playing games. Sure. But my first Amber Diceless campaign was the first campaign where I was like, I need to be good at this. Like I need to be a good GM craft good stories because I can't just throw a couple monsters and expect us to roll some dice to make this go away, like use up a bunch of time. Yeah. And you can't, you can't hide behind the mechanics. Correct. You can't hide behind any mechanics. And so um, it really is what kicked me off into starting to learn how to be a better GM. Like it got me curious about GMing advice. And obviously we know where that took me. Hmm. Um, Definitely. So. All right. Yeah. That's my first one. Your cool. first one. Uh, my first one is Fate Accelerated. And it's... Oh, good choice. Yeah. It was... Um, so it was really interesting because I flirted several times with trying to run games because similarly to what you just expressed, I really wanted to keep playing D&D, &D, but like during the summer when my GM wasn't in town... Um, there wasn't anybody to run a game, right? So I flirted with trying to run games and they all kind of ended in disaster because I wasn't very good at it. Like, I'm just going to call it right out. And I wasn't very good at it despite actually trying really hard and, you know, trying to emulate both the style of the GM that I had played with the most and, um, and kind of that understanding of um, planning and prepping for a game and, and kind of that work that we think about stereotypically going into a GM full game. And um, I didn't learn until much later. So this is probably about 2014. Um, is when I learned that the problem wasn't that I couldn't GM a game. The problem was that I was trying to run a game that didn't run in a way that was easy to me, right? So it was a lot of work for me to try to run those games and I just wasn't very good at it. And I'm sure I, I, I probably could have practiced um, a lot and gotten better at it and, and gotten, you know, good at it. But what I discovered with Fate Accelerated was that there were games that I didn't have to work so hard for that um, worked for how I naturally felt um, when I wanted to run a game. So like a game where when someone said something to me that I didn't expect, instead of going, oh my gosh, and trying to remember what I had written down um, about how that thing was going to go or where that monster was or what I named that NPC, which is how I was trying to run D&D. &D. Um, and I've since learned that part of this is ADHD, right? Like I don't necessarily retain information that I have created that way. It doesn't stay in my head. So I don't remember it. And I don't remember where I put it. So it is challenging and, and means I spend a lot of time trying to find stuff, which is just not fun for anybody. So the first time that I ran Fate Accelerated, um, I suddenly realized that it was a game that gave me the ability to say yes to players and then just not worry about what 
you know, trying to figure out where I had written something down or something, right? Like that I didn't have to have that level of notes, that I didn't have to have the monsters already picked out and prepped out, right? Um, That I could have some basic stuff, which, you know, to be clear, I do completely understand that there is an approach to to running a D&D game that you can do it like this, right? You absolutely can. But since I had never experienced any anyone running D&D in this way, I didn't understand how that could be possible. It's not what the books presented to you for like third and, and three, five edition, right? That's not what they told you. Um, now, I will just call this out. When I started playing games with Andy, Andy was running D&D much more similarly to this, right? And that is the campaign that morphed into this Fate Accelerated game that I ran um, and and turned into me understanding um, for myself what I like to run in a game and what is easy and fun for me to run in a game versus what is challenging and not very much fun and doesn't create a great experience for everybody. So that was Fate Accelerated for me. Um, it was it was pretty eye-opening. Um, I mean, I, I had kind of gotten some like audio actual play experience. Like I, my eyes had been open to other games besides D&D at this point, but it was the first one that I picked up and ran. And it ended up being the first game that we ever recorded um, for She's a Super Geek. So we go back to the very first episode of She's a Super Geek and the audio is bad, right? That episode. And I, I promise it just immediately got better after that, but it's not great that first episode. Um... And I think the one other thing I'll call out about it is it was also my first real experience with running a game that emphasizes narrative positioning um, and non-combat moves that are still useful in combat, that you can play a non-combat character Mm -hmm. who still gets to do cool stuff in combat, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so Fate Accelerated, which which is funny, right? Like I have the Fate book, but I've still actually never personally run the full um, edition of like full actual Fate. Um, I prefer Accelerated. I just love how well, I think, I quick mean, and easy and fast it goes. It works really well for me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like both. Um, I like both my preferences to play more Accelerated, although my true preference, if we're, if we're getting to it now, is to play Cortex. I know. I'm like, but but Fate, I really enjoyed playing Fate. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I just yeah. haven't run it, right? Absolutely. Accelerated really lended itself to how I wanted to run games, but didn't know that that was how I wanted to run games. And then I was presented with this game that I could run the way that I wanted to accidentally. And I stumbled into, you know, this realization of what worked for me running games. Anyway, so yeah, Fate Accelerated. Very cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, my number two actually is also a uh, early 90s, a mid 90s game, I think, uh, which is Underground, the RPG. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a very well-known so game, <laughs> uh, but it is one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I've actually played it partially once by its actual rules. And then uh, Chris and I made a fate conversion of it um, years later and played it out. I actually would, wouldn't mind going back and playing it um, by its actual rules. I mean, it's pretty traditional in its construction, but my takeaway from it. Now, I love that game like heart love that game for itself and um, the setting, the purpose of the game and stuff like that. I could gush about and go on about. That's actually not what the memorable part is for me. The thing is, I guess for people who are not familiar with underground, let me see if I can do this really quick. You are super powered soldiers returning home from a bunch of kind of stupid government instigated and corporate instigated wars coming home to a country that is not thrilled that you exist and you really like are kind of on the out like you no one wants to hire you because you're basically just like a genetically altered killing machine right and they don't um, want you to serve coffee because you're not safe or people are going to perceive you as not safe and also you're unstable because of a, the trauma that you've been through, but B, also the genetic alterations to your body has left you with some amount of um, mental trauma. So you are you are mentally unstable, super powered home like vets. Um, and the game is kind of broad, like it, it leaves you with that. And it's like, yeah, like ultimately with the idea of the underground is like there's a rebellion against the corporatocracy. Right. Yeah. Um, by these uh, by these vets, which a. I'm 100% there for, right? <laughs> yep. Um, but 
what I really loved was tucked in the back in the GMing section. There are a set of mechanics for creating social change in the game. So what it does is it allows you to like through playing acquire experience points and then you can spend your experience points to make your neighborhood a better place. Like your neighborhood has stats and you can take your experience points and say, we would like to raise the safety of our neighborhood. And so through role playing, you would do some adventures, but then you spend your points. And now the rating of like now your neighborhood becomes more safe. Conversely, when you raise one thing, another thing goes down. Like it's constantly like it you can't, you familiar. can't, <laughs> you can't min max, like you can't max out your, your neighborhood, Everything. right? Like yeah. you have to kind of spin plates. And um, I thought that was like about the coolest thing because up to that point in the nineties, every game I like ran or played was basically about getting loot. Yeah. Kill things, right? get loot. Yeah. Kill things, get loot. Whether it was D&D, whether it was Cyberpunk 2020, um, basically kill things, get loot, uh, level up, that kind of thing. But here was a game where it was like the goal of the game was to actually make either your neighborhood better because there were stats for the neighborhood, the city and the nation. Oh, wow. Like, so yeah. you could like you could do that kind of thing. And like in there, um, I think in their example, they talk about like raising where AIDS awareness by hijacking the signal of like a Super Bowl. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm like, holy yes. fuck, like that's cool. like, <laughs> like that's cooler than just getting money. Yeah. And so that never left me. And if you've ever played Hydro Hackers, you know, this has never left me because it is 100 percent. Um, and I've and it's written in the Hydro Hackers book that underground inspired the neighborhood mechanics for Hydro Hackers. Yes. Yeah. And I love ideas. I love campaign setups where you are making the world a better place. Yeah. It's a very care. That is that is yeah. a thing I carried with me. Yes. That's good. Cool. Um, my second one is uh, Tales from the Loop. And I'm going to just call out right here that I am well aware that my Tales from the Loop um, experience what? may or may not match yours. Um, it is definitely a game that in the way of my group frequently, we started off following the rules. And by the time we finished it, I cannot tell you that we were following the rules or even the, even the setting very specifically anymore because we have a very strong um, follow the story instinct and we don't usually let anything silly like the game or the rules or the book get in the way of that. Um, so, so, you know, d take this experience with a grain of salt. Um, in terms of in comparison, what am I looking for? Your, your, your uh, results may vary. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so having said that, Tales from the Loop um, was uh, a game that I is one of many games that I played with um, my Game Boys. Um, it was an incredible game. Um, and, you know, I played a lot of very good games with them over the years. Um, but there's something about this game in particular and the style of story that we ended up telling um, that I really... I think, honestly, I think it was the first time that I had played out a, um, a, a love, intimate relationship drama situation that felt both real and important to me in a game. Um, and it, it was... Uh, it was it was wild, right? And it didn't have a happy ending um, when we ended sort of at the midpoint. So um, it was and it was very like it was a high school dating relationship. Um, and in the end of the first part of our campaign, um, you know, I ended, you know, waking up in the hospital and the boy that I was dating had disappeared um, without a trace and he was just gone um, because uh, the the gentleman playing that character had had made that decision for that character, which ended up being really cool later. But, um, you know, so that was that was that was the first time that I really got to sink my teeth into a character to character relationship like that um, and really just go for it. And then, to be clear, that was the first half of the campaign. We took like a eight month or year long break. 
And then when things from the flood came out, we were too, just, this is, this is kind of silly, but bear with me, right? We were too impatient to wait for things from the flood to actually get here. So we were like, screw it. And we just picked up the tails from the loop rules and sat down and moved our campaign forward 10 years, right? And then we started playing again. And when we did that, a couple of other important things happened. The first one was um, we, our configuration of players had changed somewhat. So the two key things that came away from that part of the experience were um, I had never left a campaign and then come back to it before. Um, And it was astonishingly successful. And I'm glad that we did it that way, that we had space between those two experiences. Um, Those games are absolutely related for me. Um, to each other for me in my head, but they are, um, they needed the space to breathe apart from each other, right? Um, It would have potentially been too much or too intense to go straight from the like middle school experience, middle school, high school experience directly into the like where we set our characters um, coming out of the next was like college, right? Um, So firstly that, right? We actually ended a campaign, ended it in a good place and then came back to those characters. And I've never done that before and I've never done it since. Um, But it's like a thing that I just carry with me as like, wow, that was so cool. Um, And the second thing was when that transition happened, like I said, the configuration of our game group had changed somewhat. Um, And we had some people who like life stuff, like that couldn't be involved, whatever. Um, People had moved. And we had a new player who had not played the first half. Um, And so the way that we got him involved in that story and invested in that story was that we made him my fiance. So again, we just like dove right in on the drama because then we brought back my childhood sweetheart. And let me tell you, the love triangle was chef's kiss perfection. Now, both of those relationships were sort of cursed, but we will leave that aside. It was beautiful. Um, So I think the other really important thing is I learned a lot about bringing someone successfully into a game that had an existing previous knowledge base um, by investing them intensely and immediately, but also giving them a reason that their character doesn't really know all this stuff, right? Like he wasn't there when Centralia sank into the ground as dinosaurs climbed out, you know, like he didn't know this. He didn't know that I had previous experiences talking to aliens, but then we started the game at our wedding and guess what? The aliens showed up and off we went from there, right? So, um, so it was really cool experience, um, in so many ways. <laughs> I don't think I can say enough good things about it. I, like I said, your results may vary. By the time we hit the second part of the campaign, our relation to the mechanics was loose, to say the best. <laughs> like, at the minimum, loose loose is kind of where we were. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a pretty amazing experience just in terms of um, this type of drama we were able to create in what was a pretty wacky setting honestly yeah. by then. I mean, like, I remember the stories. It was pretty off it. the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you guys were having a great time. So I mean, I can't stop talking about that game still. And it's been like five years. I mean, it's um, a sign of a good, it's a sign of a, a good, really uh, good game. Right. And if you, if you go to a, there's a specific um, sort of era of Gnome Stew articles by Senda in which every Gnome Stew article is something about that game, right? Because it was some cool thing that happened or that I was inspired by in that game. Um, gosh, I, we even, you know, when and I even went back and, um, played out the inevitable, um, tragic end to our childhood sweetheart love story. Um, later, right, just the two of us and the GM um, to kind of bring that to a full circle conclusion. And I just bawled my eyeballs. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of all I really can say about that other than that was obviously a, a game that impacted me significantly. Cool. I'll try to be quicker about the next one. Sorry. Tell me your third one. Uh, my number three is uh, Dungeon World. Yeah. In the uh, early, um, the early 2000 teens, right? The early mm-hmm. teens. Uh, again, there are a lot of reasons I love Dungeon World, but my takeaways really, um, first, I have two that actually came out of this game. So first of all, this was the period of time where uh, everybody I had met, you included, Chris, were all improv 
uh, GMs and I was very much like a traditional prep GM. And uh, Chris's Dungeon World campaign was where I dissected mm-hmm. how Chris was actually doing this. Yeah. Like I, you know, had talks with him afterwards. I watched what he did during play. Uh, and that's how that eventually led me on my own journey to learning improv gaming. And today I'm like a mix between improv and prep. Like I don't really subscribe to either. Um, having now done both. Yes, you get to pick pieces that work. I just yeah. do. I just now do my own blended version of it where I prep a certain amount and then I don't prep a certain amount. So I can I can ad lib that part at the table. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm very fine with that. Right. But for me, the, like there was a lot like I needed to learn a lot back in those days. And so uh, I learned by playing in the game and watching Chris run it and then talking to Chris about running it. The other big takeaway, and I actually did write an article on Gnome Stew about this <laughs> right? when the game when the game first came out. Yeah, is the um, the principles from Dungeon World are things that I still carry with me uh, today. Like, be a fan of the be a fan of the players. Yeah, it's right. A like really the fan of the characters, yeah. right? Like I am, like I am a fan. Like that's how I love to GM. I want, I want them to struggle, but I want them to win. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and then I think the other one, which uh, this is another one which I love, and Chris was really good. Like I learned this from Chris, the soft and the hard move, like setting up what was like putting it out there to give the players a chance to react to it. Like, Oh, here, you know, here's the soft move. Like this Mm -hmm. thing is like, you know, this thing's starting to happen. It's coming. Yep. And then if no one did anything about it, boom, the hard move. Yeah. Right. Um, And I love that. And so much of just the GM section of dungeon world became so much of uh, how I currently GM today. Like so much of that's in there that, um, like I just soaked it all up. And again, if you go look for if you look for my name and Dungeon World, you will find an article that is not a review of Dungeon World. It talks about how universal those um, agendas, principles and things like that are um, for, you know, GMing in general. Yeah. yeah so that was a big really one good. for me. Yes. Um, it's some it is. I'm just going to side note. It is really funny to me that somehow none of these games that I am listing are powered by the apocalypse because that is so it has been such a strong influence in my life. But I guess it was harder to pick out a specific instance of change from any one of them that they didn't end up making the list, which is really funny. Anyway, moving right along. My third one is A Wolf by Any Other Name, which is a New World Magiscola um, parlor LARP. Um, that you can find it online for purchase. It plays like, I don't know, six to 25 people or something like that. Um, And we played it for my birthday in 2019. Um, And it was my first experience with LARPing ever. Um, And it disabused me of all of the weird notions that we had of LARPing in the 90s where, you know, there were like the video YouTube videos of like the guy standing there with a bunch of ping pong balls being like, magic missile, magic missile, magic missile, whatever, right? Like, it was just like, yeah, I'm not interested. It's fine. So like... In the same way that Fate Accelerated opened my eyes to other ways of running games, um, A Wolf by Any Other Name opened my eyes to the reality that, like, Boffer LARP is not the only way to LARP. Um, And, like, okay, I'm not probably personally into Boffer LARP. It's cool. It's just just not my jam. Um, But... I am super into character drama parlor LARPs, right? I am, I love them. I love them. And this was my first experience with that. Um, it was super interesting because it taught me a lot of things that you would think would be obvious about the difference between a LARP and a tabletop game. Um, and 
they say they, they seem obvious when I say them, right? Like everybody who came to my party had a completely different experience of that LARP because we were not all in the same room. We were like running around between like four or five different rooms in my house. Not everyone was in on all of those conversations. And so my experience of that game was completely different than like Andy's experience of that game where she was like, no, I'd like sat down and hung out and was like a freshman and like blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I was in the back room holding on to Brett's lapels crying because I was a werewolf and I couldn't tell anybody, right? Like we had very, very different experiences, um, which is in reality, like that's incredible. Like that's so cool because then you get to tell each other stories about a shared experience, but it's not quite the same, right? And the other thing about that experience that I really um, took to heart was I had already been um, involved and invested in um, safety at the table, but there is a, um, a really strong culture of safety in that kind of parlor LARP, um, generally. Um, and, and there has to be because you are physically interacting with each other. And so the consent and the ways that you ask for consent, um, or pause or call or all of that stuff, right. They are very clear and very strong and, um, played differently than I had necessarily played with safety at a tabletop game before. So it had a huge influence on how I thought about safety, mostly from the perspective of like, you know, let's just pause, have a quick conversation. Okay, back to character, right? Like that kind of thing, which I wasn't necessarily super doing at my tables and then took back with me because it is always more fun to ask for consent and to just always be really clear and get enthusiastic consent about the cool thing you're about to do. Um, and that was, that was, it, you know, it's weird because it was like a thing I was leaning into, but playing that game was sort of the defining moment of um, coalescing a lot of those thoughts into um, a specific idea about how we could do safety at the table. Um, and, and, you know, between that and when we were writing Turning Point, really thinking about those things and bringing in some of that LARP stuff for Turning Point um, really made me, I don't know, think about how I do safety, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and destigmatized employing the tools so that it was just a thing that you just ongoing, like there's no like, quote, bad enough, right? Like, is it bad enough to use a safety tool? No, you just use it for anything, right? Anything. You want to stop and just be like, hang on a second. I got to pee. Sure. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> just do it. Um, so that's, that's kind of a thing. And of course it's different in LARP because if you need to stop the in-character part because you need to pee or something like you need to stop it, whether that's, you know, because it's intense or because you need to run to the bathroom, right? Like it's the same thing. It has the same weight. Phil had three. I have a couple of honorable mentions because I had trouble limiting this to three. So I want to call these two out really specifically as um, moments when I had wonderful mechanical um, experiences with a game that changed my perception about how we could use in-game tools. Um, And I won't spend too, too much time on them, but just if you haven't run across these games before, I would highly recommend them. Um, The first one is Starcrossed, which Phil and I actually played together. So if you want to experience that, you can listen to it on She's a Super Geek. Hooray! Um, Which is one of those cool Jenga Tower games that uses it very smartly. even with even more cool stuff than dread. Um, and the other one is this discord has ghost in it, which was the first game I encountered during the peak of lockdown that gave me the good in person feels without being in person, because it used and made it intentional that you were using a discord server, um, and using it in intentional ways to create a ghost hunting experience. So I'm going to call those two out as um, cool, honorable mentions. It's harder to take those um, specific experiences forward to other games with you because they are mechanics specific to those games, but they're really cool. Yes. Okay, good. I I'm, like I'm good. Yeah, Excellent. that was my that was my honorable mention. Cool. I I guess then I have one more honorable mention. Yeah, um, you can have terms, an honorable mention. <laughs> in terms of memorable gaming experiences, um, I... In 2015, ran a game of Part-Time Gods of Fate. Yeah, you did. (laughs) uh, At Tacticon and had a very special player. Hi. uh, 
it it's yes. me. I'm the problem. <laughs> it was the me. first time I had ever run a game for you. Yeah, it's true. You had played in my uh, lasers, lasers and feelings, feelings. shortly yes. that same day, I think. Yes. Even earlier in the morning. Yeah. But um, that was um, what's called. That was the first game I had ever run for you. Yep. Um, and that's actually where we became friends. Yeah. And, 2015. <laughs> and that is how ultimately we wind up here. Yep. Uh, that's very like all of that, right, is um, all of that came from that game. So I can't talk about memorable game experiences without Aww. without mentioning uh, without mentioning that game. Because there were a couple of we that was that was the first time you ran me a game. I ran you a game and we played a game together that someone else ran. So like we did. in the course of that weekend, we briefly experienced all the ways, like all the configurations of playing games together. Um, yeah. And in a life changing way, because here we are on the mics and that literally wouldn't have happened other than that. So, oh, warm, big, warm, fuzzy hearts. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, can't talk about memorable game experiences without that one. Yeah. That one was, you know, um, pretty much, you know, life changing. Yeah, that was that was changed the way that I approached some of my game stuff at tables because I learned a lot of things from you. It also just changed the course of my life in general, <laughs> like yeah, in mean, a very that. generalized way. So, yes, um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. I like so. you. <laughs> I like you too. I like gaming with you. Right? It's good times. Yeah. All right. To wrap, to wrap up this topic, right? Kind of bring it all back together. I think what you've heard from us is we've talked about gaming experiences and games that have given us things to carry with us into other games. Uh, they've Sometimes the experience can be just unto itself, but a lot of them wind up shaping us. They change um, how we perceive things. We, they change how we look at the roles in a game. What, you know, what is the role of a, um, what is the role of a game master? Um, my perception of that has definitely changed over the years and has yeah. definitely influenced by not only the games, but I can tell you that life outside of um, role-playing has also <laughs> shaped what I think yes. a uh, game master should be. Yeah. Not should be what it is to me. Yes. Right. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Because it, Good it can be different things for different people. And I'm, again, totally fine with that. I know what I, I know what I want to bring to the table now. Yes. Okay. Again, the point of all this is that those experiences shape who we are. They shape how we uh, run games, play games, things like that. And, but for sure, you can have them by playing one game your entire life. It's totally fine. You can definitely have these moments, but I would, I would say play other games. Like I polygamous has been the fastest way for me to experience so many different things yeah. in so many different configurations and ways that like very quickly, like you accumulate a lot of these experiences. It's pretty funny to listen to She's a Super Geek if you listen to it chronologically, because I think part of what you get out of that experience is like the evolution of my jamming style and Andy's jamming style um, and also of how we play games because it went on for a number of years. And um, and it's interesting that there's sort of this historical artifact of the journey that we both went on because we started recording it very early in um in a massive shift to how we consider those um roles that was largely driven by playing a large variety of games sure absolutely yeah 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 cool cool all right good all right that's that's our take on some of our experiences that isn't even close to all of them oh, just goodness. a sampling yeah um for the for you uh thank you again andrew for the topic in order for us to close out the show senda tell me about another show 
on the Misdirected Mark Network. Yeah, if you want to hear more really um, into gaming people talk about more cool gaming topics, you could listen to the Gnomecast, uh, where Phil and I have both been and also write articles for. Um, on the Gnomecast, several gnomes from Gnomes do get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew pot. I hear there's a door in the bottom somewhere, but no one still has shown me where that is. It's really unfair. I heard rumors it got, I heard rumors that it, uh, it got welded up or something. What? Like, you mean yeah, you can't, Chris, you can't Chris get and out Jared, anymore? Chris and Jared did something to it. Oh, man. Like, there's no escape now. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Guess you're in it with me. <laughs> yep. So, anyway. Say, Senda, where do people uh, find us on the internet? It, it someday some archaeologist of audio is going to come back through this show and listen to me try to list all of the places during the sort of meltdown of social media that we are currently experiencing. So here we go. I'm going to do my best. Um, gosh, we still have a presence on Twitter if you are still there. Um, it's at Pandas Talk Games. Not checking it as frequently as I used to. Um, you can find both Phil and I individually on Blue Sky. Um, it's just at Senda this time. So I challenge you to misspell that. Um, and then at DNA Phil, um, you can also find both of us on Dice.Camp on Mastodon. And it is at Idella Mithland and at DNA Phil. You can find us on TikTok, same names as that, or the show at Pandas Talk Games. Um, but, uh, did I get everything? No, I didn't. Um, you can find us on the Misdirected Mark forums, which is forums.misdirectedmark.com. Or if you just want to bypass all of that nonsense, you can just write us an email. It's okay. I promise it's great. It's panda at misdirectedmark.com. That's probably way easier to remember than everything else I just listed. But Phil, once they find their way through all of this, what can they do with that information? Yeah, just like Andrew did, send us a question uh, or a topic or whatever. Like, we're here to serve you. Uh, we're here to provide you information and ideas and techniques. And we're going to put our years of gaming, our years of giving GMing advice, and um, our, uh, what you call it, just our know-how into helping you out. So you bring the question we will bring the advice. And um, yeah, I, I don't know a better way to put it. We're ultimately doing this, right? Our ultimate reason for doing this is for you to play more better games, right? That's, that's it right there in a nutshell. Uh, if you're struggling with something, we want to help you. If you are learning something and you want to get better at it, we want to provide you some advice. Whatever it is, we want to make it easier. We want to help you out because... We want you to stay in the hobby for a long time, play lots of games and run lots of games for people or play in lots of games, whatever it is. We want you to do that. If you like what we do here elsewhere on the Mr. Mark Network, consider supporting our Patreon campaign. Go to patreon.com slash MMP. You get access to the Slack Room for Life. You can hang out with us on the Friday, uh, the Friday kind of hangout, sometimes talking about games, sometimes not. Um, you can for different levels. Oh, I'm sorry. You can also get access to our vast vault of um, audio content. Archives. If you think the Disney vault is impressive, <laughs> like, the, yeah, they've got some movies yeah, you've heard are. of. But like, if you want like... 300 episodes of misdirected mark like not to it's mention in the vault. all the other shows right like, a couple hundred episodes of pandas like it's in the vault baby yeah, Come, actually like, most of the panda shows are still up we haven't actually cleared that out but we're going to <laughs> it, it'll be in the vault it's <laughs> yes. going to the vault soon remember those yes. from the 90s okay anyway um at slightly higher levels you can get access to um our actual play materials uh in this case the children of the shroud materials and at, like at other levels you can access to development materials for like games that are in development like chris's lamplighter system cool um so if you are uh, patroning. If you are a patron of us, thank you very much. You're helping to keep the lights on and make the uh, internets go round. And if you're unable to um, be a patron, we understand completely, but there's a thing you can do that only uses a little of your valuable time, but helps us immensely. And as we all know, some of you are a direct benefit from this. So 
Take it away. Yeah, I used to just tell you to leave a a rating or review, but um, I'm actually going to tell you to tell a friend uh, because if you see anyone who's looking for this kind of show, just let them know. And then if you want to, you could also leave a rating or review. We really appreciate those two, and they do make me go warm and fuzzy on the inside. Also, just know, like I said about the social media, we have no idea where anyone is anymore. So, like, thank you wherever you're doing it. Sorry if I miss it. I, I don't know how to... I don't, it's getting complicated. (laughs) We'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much to everybody who's already recommended us or um, already left a rating or review. We really do really appreciate all of that. Um, And thank you. Indeed. Say, Senda, what memorable things should we do for the game tonight? Wow. I'm going to sword fight someone. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I better prep some stuff. (laughs) This show is a joint production of She's a Super Geek and Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Clicky, it is. Okay, we got to do this fast. We had some stuff to do. We're going to clean it up. We're going to go through it. We're going to... Professional. Bam, bam, bam. First of all, hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. It's good to it's it's good to see you in in waveform it's form. Good to or uh, see us on our waveforms or something weird. Hi. Hi. It's good to talk to you. There we go. Yes. Nice to talk to you. There you go. <laughs> All right. Let's do our alignment. Yes. Bloop. Boy, I'm in a mood because counting is. Anyway. No, we don't have time for that. Nope, exactly. We got to go, go, go. All righty. Are we probably just going to do the first thing then and not the second thing? I don't know what you're talking about. The props one. We're just going to do the first one. Oh, no, we're just going to do the first one. The game changing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Once I wrote it out, I was like, no, there's plenty of material here. I feel like we can talk about games for a long time. Okay, good. All right, here we go. Bloop. I did not mean to interrupt you. You did a big pause, and I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> you were going to keep talking." Oh goodness! Bloop. Show, Show me what you got. I'm not going to sword fight someone tonight. Show me what you got. I don't Can know. I, maybe you will. Okay. I. I just. I. 